Good morning, Hillcrest. Uh, today is going to look a little bit different than our past couple of weeks. We're going to come with you guys with audio this morning instead of video. Uh, just some things happen, whatever else. And so next week we'll have the videos back up, but it's all well and good. Uh, this morning I just wanted to share with you guys uh, how important music can be. I remember growing up and driving, uh, <laughs> going. To, my dad would take me to school. We would listen to country music uh, on the way to school. I grew up in a small town in Illinois, so... That was basically the only good thing on radio. Me and my sister would jam out in the car when we were in high school age and stuff, or whenever she came back for college and whatever, we'd go to McDonald's and jam out on the way back and whatever else. Uh, I remember me and my mom jamming out to, like, classic rock and stuff. And, of course, if I call it classic rock, she's like, I grew up with this. And if my mom is listening to this, I am sorry and I love you. Do not kill me. <laughs> but I wanted to share with you guys how important music can be, especially during this time where it can help strengthen our faith more and come closer to Jesus during this weird time. Just because we can't meet on Sunday morning doesn't mean you can't hop on Spotify or YouTube or Apple Music or whatever and listen to Corey Asbury on the radio or whatever. Uh, maybe it's Elevation Worship or whoever your favorite worship artist is. But during this time, I encourage you guys to try to find a song that you guys can relate to so you can maybe it helps you closer to God. Maybe it's a song that hits you in the heart. You're like, wow, I never really thought about it like this. But this time coming up with Easter in a couple weeks or next week and more than likely can't meet just because of all this COVID-19 stuff. But however, we can still meet online. We can still meet through worship and stuff on YouTube and whatnot or listening to worship music. But I encourage you guys this week find a worship song that really impacts your heart that reminds you of Jesus and his sacrifice, especially during this time of communion as well. Uh, let's pray. Dear Holy Father, God, thank you for this day, Lord. God, thank you for letting us remember through communion what your son's done for us. God, thank you for having worship music be another way to remember the sacrifice of Jesus and you sending your own son to the cross. Lord, we thank you and we thank you for all that you do and we love you. In your son's wonderful name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Hillcrest. I don't know if this is as odd for you as it is for me, um, talking to nobody in particular, trying to imagine all of you with me um, physically, even though we are together in spirit. So talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus into, into Jerusalem, um, which is our scripture this morning, I want to give you a little background to set the stage. Um, Rome had occupied Israel since about 63 BCE, and by Jesus' time, that was almost 100 years. Now, the Romans were not known as being benefactors to their territories, um, and their rule over Israel had kind of been a, uh, a mixed bag, if you will. The greatest successes, and at the same time the greatest horrors, were visited on Israel by uh, King Herod the Great. And Herod was a very brutal man and extremely jealous of his own position and authority. He murdered many of his family members, including his wife and his sons, believing they were a threat to his rule. This was the same Herod that ordered the murder of all males two years and younger when he learned of the birth of the Jewish king in Matthew 2.16. Uh, Herod grew his own wealth and power and by extension that of Israel. And under Herod, Jerusalem became the center of trade and tourism in the region. 
His greatest achievement was the rebuilding of the temple, commonly referred to as the second temple. The building of the temple was not out of any love for God, but a monument to his own ego and a way to win the devotion of the Jewish people. This was the temple that Jesus would have taught and worshipped in. During Jesus' life, the Roman uh, emperor Tiberius appointed Pontius Pilate the prefect of Judea and surrounding territories. Pilate was Rome's representative and held all authority for making laws, taxation, and punishing criminals. He had a vested interest in keeping the peace in Israel. There had already been more than one uprising against Roman rule, and dissent among the people was constantly simmering beneath the surface. Now we come to that pivotal moment. Jesus enters Jerusalem knowing that it was for the last time. And I want to read that passage, that account, if you will, from Mark 11, verses 7 through 10. And it says, When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So who were the participants in this drama that was unfolding? First, we have the crowd that followed Jesus everywhere and cheered for him now as he entered Jerusalem. We have the disciples. They were with Jesus 24-7 and truly served as Jesus' inner circle. Then there was the religious rulers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests and scribes. Everyone had different expectations of Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. I want to start with talking about the crowd. The crowd that greeted Jesus with shouts of Hosanna, which means saves. There was an air of royal procession as they laid palm branches and coats in his path. That was because they were expecting a king, a king descended from the house of David. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 tells us, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The crowd of, that was accompanying Jesus would have been very familiar with Isaiah and were expecting a warrior king in the line of David, King David, that would free them from the Roman occupation. Someone who would restore their rightful place as God's chosen people and a people that all nations feared. Building on that is Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. And as you read the Gospels leading up to this account, 
especially Matthew, we see that Jesus' miracles came more and more frequently and more publicly as he neared his time to enter Jerusalem. Early in his ministry, Jesus was quiet about his miracles, performed them away from the crowds, away from prying eyes, not wanting to draw too much attention. But now the time had come for the full power of God to be on display. Just before his entry into Jerusalem, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And you can imagine that that created quite a stir. Word would have spread far and wide about this latest miracle, solidifying the people's expectations of a Messiah and a king and a conqueror. You see, the people wanted a king, a warrior king that would free them from the Romans and return them to the rightful place at God's favored nation. This is exactly the expectation that made the religious leaders nervous and turn against Jesus. Let's look at them next. At the, let's look at the religious leaders next. So the religious leaders were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the religious ruling class. They were the teachers, bringers of the word of God and the law of Moses to the people. So they were, they were essentially two sides of the same coin, just with differing views of how to obey Scripture. There were the priests, and these administered the temple, offering the animal sacrifices for the people as well as the annual sacrifice in the innermost chamber, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence resided. They held all power and authority in Israel, and they were the go-between. This ruling class was also the go-between with the Roman authority. It was in their interest to maintain the status quo, keeping the Romans happy by keeping the people in line. You see, they also had expectations of Jesus or the Messiah. They expected that the temple system, the law of Moses, and their traditions would continue to be the standard that everyone lived by. In Matthew 15, 1 through 9, it records one of the exchanges, one of the many exchanges, and kind of the tone of the exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. And he said, Matthew records... Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might be used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their mother or father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. Like any Israelite, this ruling class religious class wanted to be free from Roman occupation. But they saw Jesus as a threat to their power. In John eleven, forty five through fifty three, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. And in context, this is right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Going back to verse forty six, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. 
What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for, the, for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he had prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They saw the law and traditions that they followed as the end all of God's plan. I mean, that was the sum of everything to them that God had planned. Keeping things the same as they had always been was certainly their best interest. What they didn't realize is the Messiah would both come to fulfill the law and to end the law, opening a way for all people to come to him. As Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, starting with verse 21, Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The religious leaders couldn't see past their own system, if you will, their intelligence, their knowledge, right, to see who and what the Messiah really was. They couldn't accept that there was more and that Jesus was bringing more, not only for the people of Israel, but for the whole world. All they wanted was for the Messiah to free Israel from Rome so that they could worship God, live according to their laws and traditions, and sit on the throne, and by extension, maintain their power and authority over Israel. Which leads us to our last group of actors, which was the disciples. The disciples weren't that much different than the crowd. I mean, they really were. Jesus drew his disciples from the crowd, from the people that, just, I mean, the common people, everyday people. And they wanted a king as well, just as much as everybody else did. They wanted to be free from Roman rule. And for the most part, um, that's what they wanted, um, to restore Israel's glory, as we've talked about already. Even after the resurrection, they were stuck on this idea of an earthly kingdom. And in Acts 1.6, it says, So when they met together, they asked him, being, they being the disciples, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? Even after all they had seen and all they had experienced, even after the resurrection from the dead, all they still saw was an earthly kingdom and an earthly resurrection. They got to experience more than the crowd that just followed Jesus on the outside. They saw the miracles that were done in private, the teachings that they heard from Jesus, and it led them to an inescapable conclusion. In Matthew 16, 13 through 16, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? 
They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of his prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. They now understood at this point, after all they had seen and all they experienced, they now understood who Jesus was, the Son of God. The Messiah prophesied through the Old Testament. So, having this understanding, what did they do with it? Right? What was their reaction? A couple of passages. Um, the first one's from Mark 9, 33, 34. They left they, being Jesus and the, and the disciples, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. And this is, pause right here, this is not the first time Jesus predicted his death, um, and it's not the last time. And he's going to repeat this to them about three different times, um, and they're still not going to get it. So continuing on with our passage in verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because, they, when they had, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Then a little bit later, Mark 10, verse 35, it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. <laughs> and I just, I read this and I think to myself that James and John saw themselves, you know, in the new order of things as the vice messiah and the secretary of state. You know, I, I don't know how else to explain it. Mark goes on to say that other people to say that the, the other disciples heard about James, what James and John said and became angry. You know, while Mark doesn't go into specifics, I think that um, what upset them most was that James and John tried to get in line ahead of them, right? Not so much what they asked, but just they, they got there first. They kind of saw, they, they very much saw an opportunity to be in a position of power and authority. The disciples were like the crowds who saw the Messiah as a conquering hero to reestablish Israel as God's kingdom. But the disciples got a peek, a glimpse of who Jesus really was, what his purpose was, but they still managed to turn it to their own benefit and desires. They believed that he was the son of God, but still wedged him into their view of an earthly kingdom. <clears throat> and in this kingdom, they had the power and authority. Mark 10, verses 42 through 45, Jesus tells them after this exchange about power and authority. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become the great among you must become their servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Power is never what we think it is. True power is the ability to serve others and in the process, save their lives. So finally, what do, we, what do you expect? What do you expect from Jesus? Is your view of Jesus clouded by your own expectations? Do you want a healer? A warrior? A provider? Someone to fight for social injustices? Someone to right the wrongs in your life and in others? What happens when Jesus doesn't live up to your expectations? You get disappointed, hurt? Does your faith waver? Do you doubt God? How can a loving God not provide, heal, save people from their circumstances? How can he ignore the suffering and pain in my life, or for that matter, the world as a whole? Jesus wouldn't bow to other people's expectations, you see. Not the crowds, not the disciples, and certainly not the religious leaders. Jesus was focused on meeting his father's expectations. Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time with God's agenda and not his own. Maybe that's why when the time came, he was all alone. Crowds turned on him. The disciples abandoned him. All because he wouldn't fulfill their expectations. Jesus didn't come to free us from the pain and suffering of this world. I, I wish it were true, but it isn't. God's view is so much bigger than that. Jesus came to save us from death. Jesus established a spiritual kingdom, one that will never end. Jesus describes it in John 6, verses 35 through 40, where he says, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. But as I told you, but as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that day. Regardless of what happens in this life, you can be certain that Jesus ensured your life in the kingdom of God. All you have to do is believe in him and ask for the forgiveness that Jesus has already ensured. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. And as we enter this season of um, Easter, and as we reflect on Jesus' sacrifice, it is just beyond um, comprehension. And it, to think that this life is so insignificant when it seems so huge right now, but you have... Um, insignificant in the terms of eternity, right, which you have given to us. I mean, you provided eternity for us with you, and it's there for the asking. I pray, Father, that you would accept our prayer, that you would accept our desire for forgiveness, that you would pour out your blessing and your spirit on us. 
And Father, if there's anyone listening that has not accepted you, I pray that you would touch their life, that you would show eternity to them and what's available through the gift and sacrifice of your Son. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.